0: You can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: Welcome to The Journey, where we are going to talk about a lifestyle with dogs. And throw in a few life lessons along the way. Whether you're a hound hunter, a bird dog enthusiast running setters, pointers, retrievers, or a flat out running dog junkie, this podcast is for you. I am your host, Heath Hyatt, a certified law enforcement canine trainer with over three decades of personal and professional training and handling experience. It's time for me to pay it forward. So grab your leads, lace up those boots. And come and join me on this lifelong process of teaching, training, and learning called The Journey. Do you like to be outdoors like I do? Hunting, fishing, hiking? If so, OnX is the app for you. I've been a loyal OnX user since 2013. It's the one app I can honestly say I use daily. While hunting, I know where I'm at at all times. I mark trails, feeding, bedding areas, and the list goes on. When I'm traveling, I use it to pre-scout all the new places that I'm blessed to hunt. While out west hiking Yellowstone, I knew exactly where every trail went and the difficulty of each one. And here's a secret. I even use it to mark my favorite fishing spots. It's been a game changer at work. I've used it numerous times to get in touch with property owners. I even landed MedFlight one time in the middle of nowhere using the GPS coordinates. Onex has so many great features and tools, you can literally use it for everything. It is by far the best mapping app on the market. And hey, it's Houndsman XP approved. So get started with Onex today using HXP20. And know where you stand. It is Wednesday, and you know what that means? That means there's going to be a new episode of The Journey dropping. So, before we get started, uh, we we got to get some information out to you. The Houndsman XP has created its own network, and it's going to be called the Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. So, what does this mean for the listeners? If you guys really enjoy listening to the Journey and the Houndsman XP and All Mixed Up and AMA, um, the Dogmen, you're going to have to... Go to wherever you get your podcast, whether it be Apple or Spotify, and I don't know where else everybody goes. That's kind of I go to Apple, so I'm not sure. But on March the 1st, we are going to be switching from the Sportsman's Empire to the Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. So you're going to have to go in to where you get it and type in the show that you want to listen to. If you want to listen to The Journey, you need to type in The Journey with Heath Hyatt, Um, There's a lot of other podcasts called The Journey. Make sure you put it in, you put With Heath Hyatt in there and it'll pop up. Once it pops up, you can like and subscribe just like you did in the first time when you started following. And it'll pop up every Wednesday when we drop a new episode and you're good to go. It's just a little transition there. Um, You just have to type it in your search bar. It won't take you 10 seconds to do it and we appreciate it. Once I find figure out which um, picture or what my background is going to be for the podcast, which I'm not sure yet what I'm going to use, I will post that on my reels. I'll post it on my stories, and you can go, and that that picture will be attached with it, so it'll be self-explanatory. So March 1st, everything's coming off the Sportsman's Empire. It's going on to the Houndsman XP Network, which is going to be Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. And we're just going to keep rolling. So let's get this one started. Thank you guys for following us on the journey. All right. The journey it's back at it. And we're going to have a pretty familiar voice on. He was on a month or so ago. Um, we talked about some legislation and we're moving on from that. We're taking a break from the legislation part. But I got uh, Doug DeVos back on from Vermont. Uh, once Doug and I finished up our podcast, we got the chatting back and forth over text, and we left a lot on the table. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to hit on real quick right here before <clears throat> we get started is, um, you know, when you have guys that's got years and years and years of experience, and I've always said this, I, I say it when I go to canine seminars, I tell it to the classes that I teach, Um, like every opportunity I get is any information you can get is like a buffet. And when we go to a buffet to eat, you pick out what you like and you take it back and you eat. And there's all, all kinds of other options there. And I always tell my guys, and I do it myself because several, several classes I've set through, I've set through them multiple times. And the goal when I go back and reset through it is either to, um, kind of regenerate that information, or I'll pick up a tidbit that I missed the last time because I was so engrossed in the information they was providing. So <clears throat> it's like a buffet. And one of the things that Doug and I were just having a conversation about, and we're, we're going to talk about it now, is podcast. Um, Doug, I want you to tell your experience, what you were just telling me, and what, what, what it has changed for you.
0: Yeah, well, uh, again, I appreciate coming on again. And we were, we were just talking. I, uh, I never listened to podcasts ever before you and I had done one. And um, my work, I'm, I'm working an hour and 20 minutes from home. And now I'm listening to podcasts on the way to work and home. And, uh, you know, you, you even hear about the new ones coming up like uh, the one you had just done on artificial breeding, which I have a lot of interest in. Um, you know, I make sure you get to listen to them and you hear you hear everybody's, everybody's uh, you know, personal opinions and, and things they've gone through and or things they've done. It they might save you a lot of trouble.
1: Yeah, and while we're on the AI, real quick. So, uh, guys, I've had a lot of uh, messages sent my way. About the AI process. Um, it seemed like it um, kind of struck with people that were interested. So, one of the things that Aaron and I did not talk about, and I actually text her just to make sure that I was getting the correct information, is what does it cost for the insemination part to the female if you do it surgically? Now, for her vet clinic, it's going to run you 3 to $350, um, and that's if you don't do. That's without the estrogen test to make sure that they're where they're supposed to be. So three to three fifty. So total, total everything. Get the dog collected. <clears throat> excuse me. you get, get the dog collected, and then to have the, the female um, bred later on is going to run you about seven hundred dollars. Um, and I don't know. I've never bought a straw. I don't know what it cost. Um, but anyway, I feel like that you could recoup at you know with a pup or two. So anyway, I wanted to put that out there before we got too deep in it. That um, I just I talked to her and found out the the back end of that process. So everybody kind of has an idea where we're at. So uh, four fifty for getting him collected in in that average. I can't remember the exact numbers. Um, four thirty some maybe, and then three to three fifty to have the female inseminate uh, inseminated surgically. Okay, um, <clears throat> so that's that back to the podcast stuff I've always said this um, it's free information and I love to read and podcasts have kind of taken taken over for me because like like you did Doug I I was spending 12 hours a day not literally but you know 10 hours a day in my car riding around and the radio stations just play the same songs in a loop every other hour so you get tired of that so I started listening to talk radio, and I kind of was like, "Man, I feel like my, I'm like I'm like my dad because my dad, he, if he had the radio on, it was some news channel." And then you know, podcast came along, and I started listening to podcast, and um, I really, I, I I like them. Um, I still listen to them. I I probably listen to two or three a day somewhere in that that realm. Um, And I listen to a lot of different podcasts, not just on, you know, dogs and training. I listen to a lot of canine, well, that that would be canine training. I listen to a lot of leadership stuff. I I listen to um, all types of podcasts. So it's free information. It don't cost you anything. You hit a button on your phone, you subscribe, and you listen to what you want to, and you don't have to listen to what you don't.
0: I was just saying, I was telling one of my workers that rides with me, said if i if i had something like this 25 years ago you know i i grew up with a lot of old houndsmen you know guys that started even before telemetry was out you know i you could ask those guys questions and stuff but it's not like listening to a podcast you know you're getting everyone's opinion from different states and different hunting conditions to different dogs and if you're open-minded and willing to try something, incorporate it into, like you said, and I think that works in every situation, work and hounds, if you're willing to incorporate certain things to make your situation the way you want it, you you can do really well.
1: Yeah, and, of course, I've said this before, you know, <clears throat> I, I was like you, Doug. I was taught under the old school method, a lot of compulsion, and I use compulsion in my the language for my law enforcement training, is basically we made the dogs do what we wanted them to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't have – the dogs that were naturals, you had a better relationship with because you you didn't have – you weren't hard-handed or you weren't being tested as much. And the dogs that, that fit the other role, I mean, you didn't have a relationship like, you know, that I have with my dogs now. And it was 2013. I hate to say that, you know, just – you know 11 years ago that you know sitting in a class in st louis missouri that like it's like somebody smacked me with a shovel i'm like gosh man i've been doing this wrong for so long and then once i started trying to put it into practical application and i saw the benefits of it i mean i I mean i felt like an idiot like i really did like <laughs>
0: I, i've always tried to because there's a lot of people around here that you know they have a dog issue they'll ask me and i'm no i'm no dog whisperer by no means but i've been around dogs my whole life and i i've learned over the years an old guy told me once he says you ain't gonna break their bones you gotta change your mind and uh it's pretty simple sounding but it makes a lot of sense you know and i think dogs you can think about it and be complicated but it, it can be really simple too you know if you if you try and think how a dog would would normally would fix a issue or anything like that
1: yeah and i mean just learning some of the principles that i've learned you know dogs are always going to do what's best for them you know and if you can motivate them you know and I, like i said we, i use a lot of food in my training process a lot of food uh, in fact i'm going to start <laughs> Dropping some reels and some little short videos with this litter I got now. Go ahead. I know you I want had, to say something.
0: <laughs> I had a hundred questions for you, too, and we probably didn't get time enough. <laughs> you know, just as far as picking your brain on stuff, what you've come on to as far as the canine training versus the hound, If I'm sure lots of things work. Maybe some don't. Um, but do you think, in your personal opinion, is is food... Is food the the best way you found, or, or I mean, do you still do you still use electricity at all, um, even with the canines, or obviously your hounds, I'm sure, but
1: um, yeah, absolutely. It, um, food is just a motivator, and if you look at anything, and I can't quote him exactly, but Bart Bellin is like the you know the the Godfather of Nipopo, uh, which is negative, positive, positive training, and you look at the. Um, Operate conditioning, which is the four quadrants. We won't get into all that. But, I mean, Bart says that, you know, you can motivate a dog to do something. But to make sure that it's reliable, there has to be correction. I'm not, I will not say, I, I'm not a 100%, you know, positive, positive, positive. You, you, you just can't be. Not in our field any, anyway. Um, but I, I do use a lot of food uh, to answer that question. Um, it's dog-specific. It's dog-specific. Most of my hounds um, are food motivated. Uh, <clears throat> there, you'll get a dog, you'll kind of get an outlier here every, every now and then that the dog really could care less. Um, one of the things that I found very unique <clears throat> is when you have that dog um, that really don't care about human interaction. Uh, my, my duchy that I'm running right now, um, he don't care to be petted. In fact, yeah. he don't even want you to pet him half the time. Um, the I'm only time sure hunts,
0: I'm sure he hunts for himself too.
1: He does. Um, he,
0: I don't mean to interrupt you. I just I have a picture of a hound on the wall, and uh, I sold her. You know, she was a unbelievable. She one dog, one dog deal. If if that's what you needed, but she didn't care to be petted. She didn't. She hunted for herself. Mm-hmm. More my type of dog. I like. To interact with dog the dogs and if you fed her and took her hunting she wouldn't care if she saw you.
1: Yeah, I mean he's he the only time he wants interaction with me is when I have that toy in my hand. That's his motivator. That's his drive. But yeah, man, he he don't like. I can go out here in the pen right now and go to pet him, and he'll shake his head for me to get away from him. Like he don't care. Mm. But anyway, but that's one of the things that that um I found unique is that you will you will find that dog that c- just is just wants to do its job and it don't need a lot of praise and motivation and stuff to do it <laughs> because it's just that natural. It's got that, that genetic code is so deep that uh, we're basically standing in the way. Um,
0: and I, I think, I think you see that more now. <clears throat> I think People are less, we called it kennel blind. You know, everybody had to breed to their own stuff, but you see nowadays guys really trying to, breed best to the best Mm -hmm. in their opinions and i think you i think on average you get a better litter yeah you know over the last few years you know people branching out to other other
1: dogs while we're talking about litters there's two things i want to hit on um and i'll get your input uh chris did an ama uh last friday and he was talking about you know the litters making it eight out of ten and two out of ten and you know we we need to be breeding the best to the best and that that doesn't guarantee they turn out and i know people talk about this i know it's probably been hit on but i want to drive it home is like putting the dogs in the hands of people that are going to give the dog opportunity and give them a fair shake and put them in the woods Absolutely that will make or break a dog if you Absolutely. if you send it to Billy Bob down the road that hunts three weekends out of the year you know you can't expect greatness from that yeah um, and I think the uptick in litters being successful is because people like you and Kirk and the the guys that are raising some of these dogs are making sure that their dogs go to people that they trust that will give them what they need, give them every opportunity. And if the dog's two years old at that point and it doesn't make it, then okay. It may not just made the cut. And there are dogs that do that. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, the, uh, the last litter I had, I, I give a couple of them away and I, I didn't, I didn't breed to sell them anyways, but I knew they were going to good hunting people, you know, guys that hunt four, five, six times a week, mm -hmm. you know, that, that makes dogs, um, they, they have way better chance than somebody that hunts and understands dogs. And, you know, even, even down to the fact for me, is they're good. They treat dogs good. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody wanted one of mine and I knew they didn't take good care of dogs, they ain't getting one.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. To, no, for sure. If I feel the same, if, if they go to a good hunting home, you know, you you're the odds of that litter being eight out of eight or whatever is a lot higher.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's going to be, and I've been like the last, the last, I've had three letters over the last two years. And, um, the last letter, the B litter, you, you guys heard me talk about, it. I still have all of them, but one and yep. the litter before that, uh, there was eight and I've got two of those. Um, and they're all, they were all placed in, guys that hunt with me um yeah pretty much um all two of them two of them i had to let go that did not go to hunters and it was an accidental litter um and they're they're the two that probably going to make the superstars that went to to pet homes and then the litter before that the a litter uh of course they're all within you know i've got two of those two and then you know wesley's <coughs> wesley's got one forrest has got one and clayton has got one so yeah i, I haven't um having, I've never advertised or anything like that but I've tried to put them where I can keep an eye on them and see what they're doing. Yep. Um yep. and people that I know is going to hunt like you said I'm, they're going to hunt them.
0: Yeah this this last <clears throat> litter there was eight and um I've heard I've heard back good on all of them so far except uh to be quite honest mine was young last fall real young 5 6 months and I had I had enough dogs. We have a six dog per permit rule, Mm -hmm. so you know. And I like to switch them out and stuff, but I just I had too many to take her for her age. Um, But the mother, her litter mates are all started.
1: Nice, and uh, back to the litter. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you guys um, a mistake that I made, and I will I will we I had this conversation last night with uh, one of my one of my good friends Wesley. Um, Twenty years ago. I mean, a lot of times I'm riding down the road, and you know, you drive past that that dump spot, or you die, dry, dump like where you dump the dogs, um, you know, or that curve where you caught a bear, you know, in that hollow or something like that, and you have these memories. And he and I were talking last night, and I mean, man, the dogs that I've ruined, man, I'll I'll, I'll own it. I have ruined a lot of good dogs. I have sold or given away dogs that I ought to have my butt kicked for because I didn't have the patience. Um, I, I was short-fused. Uh, all the things that you're not supposed to be. I I, I fit that mold, or did. <clears throat> and we were talking last night, and he was like, yeah, that's definitely not you now, but I remember so-and-so. But back to the litter. So I'm going to tell you a, a mistake that I made with the bee litter. So those pups are just now turning six months old. So at it was about four four and a half somewhere in there four four months old i would say um i thought the kids had been doing a little bit more lead work with them and so anyway i ended up um having a coon and i went <clears throat> and turned it loose and the pups man they were like all four of them were doing exactly what you want to see you know they're, they're gamey, they're hunting, they're working, and so Maddie and I were up in the field with them, and I called them, and I put them on double leads. I put two on one lead and two on the other, and if you guys, and I've seen it in the police world, and like it kind of smacked me in the face up here when I did this, they shut down, and when I say shut down, I mean it didn't matter what was going on. The world could have been blowing up. There could there could have been there could have been a bear sitting five foot from them, and they could have cared less because mentally the pressure that was put on when I say pressure, they had the leads on them, they were tied up to a fence post. There was two of them tied together, which I never do. Um, two of them tied together, they they had not been prepared for that step yet, um, and I will say I. I'm a little bit behind with, I I was, (laughs) I was a little bit behind with these on the lead, but I thought the kids had been working them more. But it shut them down, and it shut them down to the point where they were flipping out. Everybody's seen the pup dogs on the end of the lead, flipping, flopping, running backwards, squalling like, you know, a banshee. And so I went up and I turned them loose. And they all hightailed it back to the house. And when I say hightailed it, I mean run like a scalded dog to the house. Um, So that's five, six hundred yards back to the house. And three of them recouped pretty quickly. Um, They were a little bit lurry of me, but I could get my hands on them, whatever. I had one. And he, it took me almost a month. Now guys, listen to what I'm telling you. I put him in in a situation that he was not, he was not prepared for, it was uncomfortable, and it was a shock to his system. It shocked all of them. It took me almost a month to get my hands back on him where he would trust me. Mm. So at four months old, one bad experience, because this is what it was, one bad experience will set you back for months. And I I mean, I'm a professional, like I train dogs for a living. And when I seen what was going on, I tried to stop it and reset. The pups weren't having any part of it. Um, it took me a couple days with the other ones where, like, they, did, they didn't they did want me catching them. I mean, that's what happened. They did not want me catching them because it was so traumatizing that they got tied up on a lead to a fence post, and they had not been done like that before. Um, 20 years, 15 years ago, I would have probably got rid of every one of them at that point in time. Make I would, sure. I would, I'd have sent them packing. <laughs> I'd have said, come and, come and get them. Yeah. But I, through my training and experience, i have seen what was happening. I'm like, mm, yep, bad. Let them go. They got to the house. I, I was very patient. They're they're four months old. I'm not in a rush. And, and Briggs, which is the one that it took me almost a month to gain his trust back. And I mean, just within the last couple of weeks, um, like, he, I'd go out in the yard, have him loose in the yard, all them pups would be running, and he'd be right there with me. Like, he'd be right within hand's reach. But if I retched down to touch him, gone. Gone. Like, I'm out of here, buddy. You ain't catching me and doing that to me again. Um. So I, have, I, I had to take a step backwards, um, build that trust again. Didn't do anything else but try to build trust with him. And, I mean, of course, now I've got them doing everything else. Um. But, You know, just I'm just trying to give you guys a little bit of insight to some of the things that I used to make mistakes on, and it was a mistake now, but I know how to fix it. Then I didn't. I just got rid of, like you said, y'all out of here. You're out of here. Um, So I just wanted to share that with you guys. If you see your dogs, and like I said, when you see them shut down, that they go into survival mode. That's what's happening in their brain is survival, and nothing else matters. a behavior that you'll see out of this. Now these pups, well, no, actually this did happen. One of them did when they go into survival mode and you go to reach down at them and they bite you. That's because they're survived. They're trying to survive. Yeah. They have no clue what's going on. Um, And one of them did that and I didn't get mad. I didn't get, I didn't lose my temper. I, I didn't even think nothing about it. I'm like, okay, okay yeah, I got to get him out of this because as soon as he comes out of red, and it took them. It probably took them an hour that evening. But I just wanted to share that with you guys. That a mistake that I made with the litter that I'm raising right now. And if you see that pro, if you see that happen, take a step back, reset. Don't pressure them. You you know whatever took place. You know, like I said, this was a trust issue with them. It's me reaching down and grabbing them and putting them on a lead and confining them when that's not what they were used to. They had that you know. It it was it was a it was a mess. It was a mess, and I've like I said, I've worked through it, and we're past it now. But you ever had anything like that happen?
0: Um, I mean, I've had a couple dogs that were standoffish, not maybe because of the leash thing, but it it takes a lot of patience. And like you said, twenty years ago, a dog would just be down the road. You know, it takes a lot of patience and time. You know, if a dog goes through something traumatic like that to you know they like you said they need to trust you again
1: and maddie maddie was with me and you know i was glad that she got to witness that because we me and her talk we spent a lot of time together in the woods together and you know it it i mean we were walking back down to the house and she was like i can't believe that and we've raised you know she's she's 14 we've raised a pile of dogs in for her 14 years um And she'd never seen that happen before, and it was kind of like, I can't believe like putting them on a leash. I said, Maddie, they weren't ready. You know, we talk about that here on this podcast all the time about training and foundation and baby steps. They were not ready. I put them into an environment for prey drive, like bam, 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 and then I shocked her system, and they couldn't handle it at four months old. So, uh, mistake I made. If you guys do that, like I said, just be patient because it can be fixed. Um, It may take a little time, and like I said, it set me back, like Briggs, it set me back with him. Like, he's my buddy now. Like, I made extra sure to um, rebuild that foundation with him. Like, I took an extra step to make sure, because I don't want this happening in the woods where you can't get your hands on them. You know, we've all had dogs, or somebody Uh in our hunting group's got dogs you can't – we call them a coyote, man. Like, they gone. (laughs) They gone. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I – My dog's got the handle. I don't use leases for much. Just hook them at the tree and get out of sight, you know. They've got a handle. But in your experience, mine personally, uh, I've had better luck with uh, females maturing quicker Mm -hmm. uh, as as young dogs. And I think they they do in in humans. Mm -hmm. But... um, I think I'll, I'll get a younger dog as a female to start and advance uh, a little quicker than a male. I've had better luck with that, anyways. I, and I, I've got some good males too. But
1: um, yeah, it does I, seem I like know, the females mature quicker. It does. Yeah,
0: yeah. So. But I've also I've I think in the past I've I've pushed a young dog harder than they they should. They almost not. I wouldn't say lose interest, but I think you can over. I think you can overhunt them when they're coming on. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, years ago, not knowing that, you think the dog just do not care for it anymore, you know. But you leave them home a few days and, you know, things like that. I, I've noticed myself.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, you know, and you've hurt, I'll tell you what you're doing, and people don't get this. I mean, like I said, it takes. Sometimes it's a sophisticated process, and people don't take the time to analyze it and look at it. Um, I'm with you, Doug. I I don't like to – until my dogs are a year old, um, I'm not hunting them that much on bear, on bear. I think coon is a different story. So um, my little sassy female, uh, she she was six, eight months old, ten months old, I think, during bear season. And I mean, I hunted her maybe six or eight times during December. And training season I had her out four or five times. And she's so like she's showing me so much, it's just hard to keep her in the kennel. Like it's hard. But yep. I, I want guys to realize this. Doug, you putting that pup up, are you seeing that it's it's kind of shutting down or it's it's not act it's not performing at the level that it was? Hey, it's got this ability, you see it. But then you keep pushing, 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 and it's not mature. You put that dog in the pen for a little bit, you're building frustration. And when you build frustration, you're building drive, if it's if it's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you take that dog back out two months later, or three months, or whatever, however long you put it up, you're like, bam, where'd you come from? Because that dog's ready to go.
0: I, I had a dog, and this is this is a true story that same dog I just told you that hunted for herself and I I sold for she, she real good money she was a real bear dog her first year that going into that fall she on a pile of bears um but she'd come off a couple and she was catching a lot by herself and but i was still frustrated because she was coming off but you can't expect a dog to catch all the time alone and and be on the ground with bears and and not get sick of it at some point and i i considered culling her you know and i said i leave her this winter and that next spring that next june uh, i think we treat 28 bears in june and she never backed off of one matter of fact it was the opposite, mm-hmm. but I mean, I was 50 on on even keeping her for the winter, and she ended up being an
1: unbelievable dog. Yeah, I mean, she probably matured was probably the biggest thing right there. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah, she went. I think you know she was a little over two that next year. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was expecting a lot out of that one and a half year old, which I I expect them to do pretty well at that age, anyways, but. You know, most of the time she was doing awesome. Just a couple bad bears, she'd come off. And uh, that, that winter of maturing, she, she came into it that next year.
1: Yeah. Um, And while we were on pups, and when we talked, he was talking about breeding the best of the best. I wanted to bring this up and I got, I got sidetracked in my own thoughts. Um, When you're, when you're breeding, Doug, I know we talked about, um, what about what about build confirmation temperament um, what are some of the other things that that you're looking for yep
0: um, for myself personally I, I don't like a big heavy boned dog I don't I don't like a I don't like a big tall heavy dog I like a more narrow chested good legs good tight feet yeah um, and maybe I wouldn't want something different if I lived somewhere else, but we got a lot of hills, a lot of mountains. And um, I think them bigger boned dogs and heavier dogs, they, I think they get older quicker. You know, you take a streamlined built dog, that dog seven, eight years old, still going to go well. You know, where that, for me, them bigger dogs, um, they get old quick. And, you know, they hard to run day in and day out. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you you don't have one that has a big heart and pushes himself, you know, but as far as the build, I, I like a tight built, smaller, smaller dog myself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I don't know, like, uh, Rangeley, he's probably 55, you know, 58. Mm-hmm. Spider was a little bigger. He was probably 60, 65. Um, but that's a that's a good build for me. Um, they they gotta be generationally good and I don't know if that's the right word for it, but I, I don't breed a fluke. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything against it, but I think, you know, guys like me and you and the guys that we know that hunt super hard. I mean you're putting your whole life into it. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give a dog two years, you know, two, two and a half years of my life hundred percent I want the best chance possible how many times can you do that from now until you can't go again you know Mm -hmm. um so like that that dog's brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles you know I want an average of really good hounds of of what you're looking for and and that's that's how I personally select a dog that's worth breeding um they got to be good natured too. no, no aggression. You know, I, I can put my males in a box with strange males and that's a lot to ask for, even if you got good dogs, but I don't, I don't allow any of that stuff.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, and like I said, I'm, I'm constantly learning and I've made a lot of foo pas over my career and I'm sure I'll make more, but I'm trying to be more educated and, make better decisions for my dogs. Um, but, yeah, I really look at the litter mates. And then, again, we got to go right back to what we just said. You know, are they getting in the hands of the people that's going to hunt them? I want exactly. to see how that litter's doing. I do want to know, you know, the, the dad and the mom don't have to be, you know, talking to Bart Rogers, and we did that podcast a year ago with him from Auburn University, you know, talking to Bart – they don't have to be superstars. A lot of your average dogs are the ones that produce the really good litters. Uh, but their
0: grandparents I, are probably,
1: yeah, you know. I, w- I want to know what their parents do and their their aunts and their uncles and their, their grandparents and their great – you know, it's hard to track some of these, these dogs back um, that far um, with the line that I'm hunting, but – yeah, the litter mates are huge. That's that's one of the first things I want to you know talk about or find out about, and then you know back to the parents as brothers and sisters. What's that litter doing? And then I really think that ups your odds if you can do those two things. I think it ups your odds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, one of my best things out here, but the two best males I've personally bred to is, is Spider and Rangeley. and of course I have. I have some stuff out of kurt's taz dog too and he was he was a wicked reproducing dog um he was a nice dog um but like rangely he's got really tough black and an old old friend of mine in in maine he's been a guide for 55 years and he won't take a pup if it don't have black pads Hmm. and 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 i don't believe in any kind of hocus pocus stuff but um that dog's never been sore-footed that rangeley dog he he, he's tough he can go every single day Uh, if he hadn't lost his leg he'd be nine this year he he'd still be right there with the other dogs and and he pat he passes that on i have three three dogs out of him two different females three different litters um and they all have tough feet you know yeah that's a, that's a super good trait to have.
1: Yeah, I and I'll, talk, I'll hit on this real quick because I'm like you. I I like a dark pad. I think they hold up better. But you know, Shorty Gorm said something in one of the podcasts that made me sit back and rethink my position. Like, mm-hmm. and he's a ho- he's a rodeo. You know, he runs the rodeo and stuff. And my sister, my dad, and my daughter all have horses. They're horse nuts. <clears throat> and there are horses with white hooves you know, with the, they're not, they're not, they're not black. And, you know, Shorty made the comment that, you know, those horses are just as tough. If you look at some of the wild Mustangs, they've got white. And it made me change my thinking. I still Mm -hmm. like the darker pad. That's what I would prefer. But I'm not as, um, like I said, most of my dogs are mixed. They've got the black and a little bit of the white or the white in them. And I'm trying. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to breed for the the black. That's what I want. Um, but when Shorty said that, I, I had to take a step back and rethink. Like, okay, well maybe maybe he's got a point. And I just want to bring that up as a as a like, just think about that. Not me and you, but for the listeners. Like, yeah. uh, he made a he made a valid point. And like I said, I've been on you know round horses my whole my, almost my whole life too, and um, it just made me think differently. I'm like, mm, yeah. okay, I got it.
0: Yeah, no, I ain't. I ain't kidding. That's the way it is. That's just.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: One of the old, the old fellas told me, yep. you know, and you, you ever see a coyote with light pads, yeah. you know, and if if you think of it that way, mm-hmm. and them guys are on every type of snow condition and 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 bare ground condition there is, but uh, yeah, it's just a uh, a preference.
1: And the last the, litter, the bee litter, the litter that when I bred uh, Kate, that was one of the things that I asked about. I'm like, mm-hmm. Dart pads, you know, got dart pads. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so yeah. I feel you. I'm with you. I'm on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's hit on a couple more things before we run out of time. We're gonna be chit-chatting all night. Um, yeah. so Chris and I done a podcast on rigging. And um I tried to hit on a lot of topics. Um, I'm not an expert at it. Like I said, by no means. I've been very lucky with the success that I have had. I'll just put that there. But one of the things that I missed. And I did not mention because we run out of time and we got sidetracked. And I'm going to tell you my experience. And then, like, you guys rig a lot up there and um, when y'all were in Maine with Kirk and him. So one of the things that I noticed early on, so I'm talking when I first started rigging 20 years ago with my old ring dog, um, is we hunted, we, we hunted a little different than we do now. And this is one of the reasons I've changed my the way I do things. So I'd rig a track and literally I would sit there and wait on the other guys to get to me. So I'd rig it and I'd pull up a hundred yards or 200, whatever it took for him to, to start, stop barking. And then I'd wait on them and then we'd drive back down the road. And more so than not, I wasn't picking those rigs back up. Yeah. But one of the things again, now I've, I've got, 20 more years of experience in since since those days. Ring would rig tracks more so than the bear. Like, he would literally rig, rig a track, go find the track, and trail it. Where the dogs that I'm hunting now are more rigging the bear. Or where the bear's been through pretty quick, you know, it's not it's not the same style of dog. Um, and when we were talking about that, I, we got off the podcast, and I'm like, crap. So, my thinking and my thought process is... If you're rigging a track and you drive on and you turn around and come back you 10, 15 minutes later um, and you're still rigging that track, that track probably crossed the road or was somewhere there close where it was holding the scent. Um, But I feel like more over 50% of the time, Doug, if I drove past a track and turn around and come back, I couldn't get it started. And now... If I rig, and you know, you can ask all the guys I hunt with, they get so mad at me. And maybe I've never explained this to them. Maybe, maybe I've just done it because of my experience. But if I rig a track now, my dogs are coming off the truck. Like I'm not waiting, I'm not driving down the road two miles and coming back or 400 yards and waiting. I turn them loose. What do you think?
0: Yeah. I was hoping you didn't want a good answer. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's.
0: I, well, just being honest, I mean, I've, I've done it a hundred times, you know, or, or, you know, you're, you're on a bear race and you strike another bear and you say, well, we'll treat this one and come back here and you pay hell to get it going. I mean, i ain't saying you don't, but um, I, I don't know what it is if they locate it when they first hit it, you know. And they have it in their head; it's right there. I, I don't. Well, I think it's a
1: tough one. I think it's a lot of things. You know, if we want to break it down a little bit, um, first of all, you got to think that scent itself is decaying by the microsecond. Like as it's fallen, like it's bacteria and it's literally decaying on itself. Um, And I never really give this a lot of thought until. I started learning and like I said maybe this is something I've kept to myself. But yeah, when you drive up the road, and let's just make a visual so people can see what we're what we're talking about. So we're driving up the road. You're you're driving up a road on the left-hand side of you there is a there is a incline. It could be a ridge, it could be a bank, it could be whatever you want to call it. It's something that goes up. And then on the bottom side, just like we're driving down a mountain road on the right-hand side, passenger side, it drops off in into a low point. And we drive through there, and if the bear's below us and it's early morning, the thermals are probably carrying that odor up. We all mm-hmm. can agree with that. That's pretty simple. Yeah. Um, if the bear's above us, um, depending on which way the wind direction, the barometric pressure, all the things that goes into play, and we could talk about that for days, um, mm-hmm. You know, the bear may be right above the road, and the dogs catch the odor, and there you go. But we drive down the road, like you said, go get our dogs, come back, load them up, and we come back. Well, if the bear on the bottom of the road, on our passenger side, the odor, and those thermals have moved, that odor has literally pushed up the mountain, and it's gone. It's not there anymore. Unless you get close to that animal where you're getting that live scent from him, and we... Um, you know, we talked about that too about uh when our dogs get proximity alerts in the police world, unless you get within that 3 to 400 yard range, and I'm not saying it can't be 5 or 6 depending on the the area you're hunting, you know, how the currents traveling, the wind direction, all that stuff, it could, it can could change. I'm just saying 400. If you're yeah. not within 400 yards of the actual bear, then chances are likely you're not picking that up. Yeah. And, and then the bear that was above the road um, again, thermals, did it take did it take it up? <clears throat> did did the, the air pressure push it another mile out the road? You know, there's so many things that go on with odor that I think sometimes we don't even think about. You know, we just, like you said, we just drive by, dog struck, go get the dogs. We come back an hour later, the dogs aren't striking. We're like, we're dogs ain't worth a nickel. Well, mm. it's what I, this is what I tell my detection guys. Um And when we're we're running for odor, whether it be narcotics, explosives, whatever, um, the dog's nose is only good if the odor is available. So if that odor is not available for the dog to smell, then you cannot expect your dog to find that odor. And and I won't go into detail there what I'm talking about, but um, there are ways to uh, change the the velocity and the way that odor travels uh, for us um so i don't want to give that away but does that make does that make sense
0: yeah for sure yeah, i mean i'll i'll i've seen so many different things striking I, i've seen bears before and people are going to think i'm i got crap dogs but i've seen a bear before and drove by and they didn't strike and turn around and come back and they they blow up like it was standing there. But I, I, I say the scent hasn't risen. You know, they didn't see the bear. I, I don't know as if the scent had time to to come up to where they're rigging. Um that's my excuse anyway. Um but I've I've been the third truck I'm this one time in particular. I was a third truck and I had some guys here from out of state and my Rangley dog blew up. And I radioed to the front truck if they had had a strike at all, and they hadn't. And I stopped and let Rangely down, and he went 200 yards down on the lower side of the road. And he opened, and I cut my side of the dog box, and the guy says, what are you doing? I said, well, you, you should let your dogs go, and we treat a bear. And then then you have a time where you you know they should have struck, and they, they didn't. So it's, it's a tough one for me.
1: If we could see odor, I think all of us's opinions and, great. and knowledge <laughs> would change. Yeah, yeah. If the, we could the, see it,
0: the Alpha Four Hundred.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things that that I learned when I was um, working with um, the explosive guys a lot and training training dogs for some of the consulates overseas, like uh, they have a uh, a room in the facility that I was training at and they fill it full of smoke and they'll put certain things um you know just a box like a box um let's just take a cardboard box a two by two box just two by foot by two foot just a an ups box and they'll tape it just like at the seam you know they tape they fold it up tape it up the bottom fold it up put your strip across the top and for us we always think we'll just run you know run the dog across the top because that's where the odor's coming out. That's the seam, right? Well, you couldn't be more wrong about that. And I've seen it yeah. in this room too many times. That odor, that odor sinks and comes out the seams of the bottom. And hmm. so, I, we, I, I, you know, that was a learning thing for me because I was always running the dogs wrong. Pre- I was presenting the the area that I wanted them to 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 sniff. Um, right. And it was not the right area to be presenting presenting them, but yeah, I mean, odor is so tricky. And when you think you know, you really don't. Like you said, when you, you the bear crossed the road, you should have struck on it, and you don't. And then you know you you come you come behind a third truck, your dog strikes. You are like, what's going on? Like we just you know, it's it's an unknown. It really is. Yeah,
0: it's it's really incredible. <laughs> Even after you know twenty five years or whatever, it's. It's amazing what they can do what they can smell you know we get to go into main there we get to run off camera you know and you see <laughs> of course i got a different thought on that too um these guys say they take 14 hour 15 and 16 hour old tracks and i'm not saying to them that they're not but there's so much scent on that bear path that them bears have been living on you know a, a dog that mm-hmm. gets used to running down those bear paths most of the time that i've seen personally them bears ain't more than a half mile away laying down and all them dogs got to do is get on that bear path they're not taking a the track. you, know, you saw you mm-hmm. you're not taking a track mm-hmm. you saw a bear you know at 14 hours old they're they're, ta- they're going on a bear path and coming up with a bear last seen on the camera 14 hours ago. And I, my dogs have done it and I thought it was neat, you know, 11, 12 hours old, but did, you know, was it really, you know, uh, how far was the bear just off camera? You know, you don't know, but it is neat to kind of see how that works.
1: I'll tell you a story. And this was going to go back to my canine stuff, my, my ta- my canine tracking. So. <clears throat> this handler is now retired, and he had a pretty good success rate of finding people, you know, surprisingly. And we go to training, and dog couldn't track a lick. And I, I'm, I'm being honest, like, couldn't track a lick. So it took me a little bit to figure out what was going on. So when we started using our Garmins... So we we all have, like all of our group has Gormans now. We run the Alphas. We run collars on the the dogs. The handlers got the handheld. The tack team commander's always got an extra handheld so we know where everybody's at. It's been a great tool. And it's actually been a great training tool, too, because I'm doing a lot of off-lead stuff right now with our tracking group um, to show the guys how much of a hindrance they are to being attached to the dog. Um, you know, we're, we're laying, you know, thousand yard tracks, which is a half a mile. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just, we're just using 30 minutes. We only got eight hours to train, so I can't lay an eight hour old track. Right. So we're doing 30 minute old tracks and we're turning the dog off lead. The dog finds them usually within two minutes, under two minutes. Boom, 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 gone. And then put the lead on the handler with the lead and, let him go find them. It's taken them 30. Uh, but anyway, I'm
0: guessing, um, and I'm, I could be wrong, but just thinking about a dog on a lead, probably an inexperienced handler could, could turn a dog off. You you know, this looks like the way I would go. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Instead of just trusting the dog's nose.
1: And I'm Um, the one thing that we, you and I have an advantage of is, we know dog behavior. We see our dogs. We see them working. Yeah. These guys the guys that I'm training have no dog hunting, bird, duck, bear, deer, coon, squirrel. They don't have it. And it it yeah. takes years. <laughs> like it takes years for them to figure it out. But so back to the to what I was telling you. So this guy in training could not could not could not track a warm biscuit. And I'm like, how in the crap is he finding all these people? So we started setting up scenarios and started using the Garmin. Well, this is what was going on, just what you're saying. This is the same thing that you're saying about those dogs just going down the path, getting close enough to win the animal, and going to it. So what he was doing is he was walking around, and I proved this to him by the Garmin, because we had the track layer holding the collar and going in a, in a straight line for 500 yards. And then I'd have him start the track. And, I mean, it looked like a jigsaw puzzle. I mean, he was left and right and a half a mile over this way and two miles over. I mean, it was like all over the place. But he was walking around enough to the dog yeah. actually got in body odor and was able to, to locate the person. So all he was doing was an area search on lead. Not tracking. And he had been pretty successful at it. And that's exactly what you're explaining, Doug, is the dogs are going hunting. They're going out in the direction that the bear went. They go 500 yards. Boom, there's the bear laying. Yeah. So they're doing an area search. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I don't know how old, even my dogs, I don't know how old of a track they'll take. I know they're colder nose than a lot of dogs I've hunted with. But I don't know how old of a track they'll take. I think you know the the dew, the temperature, the pressure and I think all that has to has a big part of it.
1: Yes, it does and um, yeah there's a lot of things that, that play into it and you know I yeah I mean I don't want to step on my own nose, but I've seen some dogs in the past do some phenomenal work um, trailing. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it, um, would have been snow related. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned like, I, I want, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, but, yep. um, snow related where the dogs could come back the next day or the day after. Um, and, and again, that goes in, was it frozen the night before, you know? What moisture holds odor when it when it thaws out that releases that odor i mean that's a whole like i said that's a whole different podcast um but i've seen some dogs do some phenomenal work over them over the years but now knowing what i know about scent and you know i've got my dogs out tracking you know at at work and being able to see some of it and i do think our hounds are better i mean I, i i do think that but some of this stuff just kind of makes you want to scratch your head, like, mm. Mm, okay, you know, especially when the humidity's up. I mean, humidity's the two-edged sword; yep. it, it holds moisture, moisture holds holds odor. But when that when that humidity starts to evaporate and the temperature starts to change and the sun gets overhead, like that changes the whole scent picture. And I can prove it to you a hundred times because I, I do it daily, but. Yeah, sometimes it makes you, and even myself, it's made me question myself. Like, yeah, maybe I, maybe I was wrong about that, or maybe, maybe I need to rethink my position. That's the best thing. I was rethinking my position. Really? Um, yeah. But while we're talking about scent and temperature, let's talk about temperature change. Um, so at the SCI conference, I was talking to um, Ross Blackwelder. Um, and he's got the B and B ranch hounds and we got in a short conversation and he said something to me and I was like, "Duh, I never talk about that, but I do see it. So Ross and I were talking about, um, now he hunts Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, you know, the, the areas out there. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. he said that one of the hardest t- times for him to trail to trail is when it's 30 degrees in the morning and 70 in the afternoon. He said, when you have that 30 and 40 degree temperature change throughout the day, that it throws everything out of whack. So I got to thinking about it, especially during our training seat, like September. I, don't, I think your weather is pretty much like ours. Um, yeah, it changed. Yeah. So um, September, early September, you may start getting those cool mornings, you know, where mm-hmm. it's down in the, you know, 40s, 50s, and then get back up in the 80s. You know, so you're yeah. 30, you're, you know, you're 30 to 40 change. Um, And I do know, and I, and like I said, once Ross and I started talking about this, it kind of made me step back and start thinking about things, you know, processing it. Um, You know, when that temperature starts getting above that, that 20 and 30 mark for me, like, yeah, we're not trailing. We're not trailing. Um, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Do you, do you see any effects like that or do you?
0: Yeah, I mean I I obviously I'd way rather have the the early morning you know 30 40 degrees than than the 70 um, as far as the the change in the day itself I I certainly will pay attention to it <coughs> now I mm-hmm. off the top of my head I can't think of you know a time when that happened and I noticed it because of the weather but I any day of the week, I I take the cooler temperature. Yes, I, I personally I personally think the, you know, you take a take a better track, you know, take an older track or, or you know do a better job on it, um, with them cooler temperatures.
1: Yeah, and I mean all the way around. I mean it helps the dog. The dog's you know olfactory right. system works better. You know the hotter it is. I mean the hotter it is and the more they're panting. That's their that's their sweat for us like we yeah. get to sweat externally they don't um you know the more i've had one
0: dog overheat and now i don't boy if it gets if it gets over 75 you know in 80 I, I wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't intentionally go if it was 80 um you know and if it got hot i'd pick him up because i've had one overheat, and uh luckily i was close to a brook and i i got his back legs cooled off. And uh, he come out of it, but yeah, the temperature thing's big for, for me.
1: Yeah, me too. And I mean, all my guys, you can ask him. Like ten o'clock in the morning, I'm done. Like especially you when know, yeah. August or early season, yeah, I'm done. Like I'm Barrick can run out in front of me, and I'm yeah. a, I'm a wave at him like, daddy, you got lucky yeah. today," because like, I'm not I'm not turning on him.
0: <laughs> and and for any listeners that that haven't had a dog overheat, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. But I was told, and it worked for me. But cooling the dog's back legs off—they have main artery going down their back leg. <clears throat> you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily dip them in the water, but you you can splash water on their mm-hmm. back legs, and it helps their internal cool down quicker.
1: Yeah, uh, and, uh, Garrett and I did a podcast on heat exhaustion. Yeah, and that's one of the things he said. He said, you know, and I've I've done this before. Um,
0: I ain't mean, got to all the podcasts
1: yet. Yeah, like, <laughs> <working. laughs> you got plenty of time. Um, yeah, but you know that's one thing he says: do not, do not soak them in water because they're, you're basically just cooking them because they're, you know, they're thermal wrapped. Um, put right. them in, put them in in the truck. Turn on the AC. Splashing, yep. splashing water. Keep getting their feet cool because that's, you know, that's yep. one of the main areas. So you're doing it right. Um, again, do not, do not douse them right, in water careful. wrap a towel yeah. around them like i the thing i mean run a water hut like we've done it all i mean we've made those mistakes yeah. and you know we're so blessed to have garrett as a part of our group because he keeps us he keeps us lined out and he's probably helped us save a couple of our dogs over the last you yeah. know four or five years so but no you're you're exactly right um that you just you know don't doubt don't soak them you just like Try to get their noses cool and their feet cool. Yeah, yeah that artery is a main artery. Um, I can see where that would be beneficial. So, yeah. <clears throat> what else you got? Anything on your mind before we wrap it up?
0: No, I mean uh, I'm sure I'll have a bunch more tomorrow <laughs> after I think about it.
1: But I mean, um, you could, we could talk dogs. All we could talk dogs. Like
0: I'm, I'm could, around. Yeah, I mean I'm. I I, especially I, you, you talking about uh, hunting snow. You know we. We get to hunt, our season goes into the middle of November and, uh, the bear on, on my back wall there, I don't know if you, you yeah, can't see actually, it, light, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's five inches of snow, dogs around him six, seven hours walking, big, big country, no roads. Um, it's a good time. That was an old track. That, that was a fun hunt. That's a, another long story, but, and then we cat hunt a lot. So it's, it's so different to see what they'll take. You know, these dogs would take a cat track that I know was made yesterday because I checked them roads every day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, you know, I know they wouldn't do that with a bear on bare ground. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't take that same track. But
1: Yeah, somebody got different. to ask me, um, while, you, while you're on snow, Let's I'll throw a little synology out at you. Because um, somebody was asking me about this the other day. Um, I had a guy tell me uh, that the dogs – if it's below freezing, 32 degrees, if it's below freezing, mm-hmm. eight minutes, and you're not tracking, and I'm like, <laughs> mm, I don't know about that, but um, I'm going to test your theory. So, I actually posted a reel uh, a couple weeks, I don't know, a week ago, a month ago, where we were out, I laid an hour old track, it was 32, 31, 32 degrees, it was right at freezing, um... And Robbie had his Hanno Hound, and he ended up, you know, he run... It was a mile long, too. Like, the track was a mile long. Like, I'd done it to the T. He, that was his certification track. So, it was an hour old, a mile long. Everybody thinks that, oh, it was in the snow. You can see the tracks. Well, there was cross tracks where people had walked through some of the area that we'd been in. There was deer tracks. I walked into a deer feeding area on purpose to come out of it to give him some contamination. But... Um, Anyway, you know, one of the things that, that once he told me this and I start, like, again, I'm, my, my brain wheels are turning and I'm like, mm, I don't know about this, I don't know about that. We hunt, I mean, we hunt in cold weather. I mean, December, we do have some 50 degree days, but most most of the time it's, you know, 30 to 40 degrees is kind of the weather pattern, but <clears throat> snow, if you have a light Fluffy snow that's got air pockets in it. Everybody knows. Can you visually see mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Like, it's like you're taking popcorn and dropping it, the fluffy snow. Yeah. Those air pockets will hold odor. Mm-hmm. will hold it. And if it freezes 32 degrees, what, what happens with molecules when they freeze? They shrink. What happens yeah. when they heat up? They expand. So um, that those pockets will hold odor a lot longer than what people think. Or, yep. you know, may think. I don't know. People probably have it figured out way before I ever did. Especially the guys out west that are line hunting and that stuff. I mean, they they probably know a lot more about snow than I do. But, um, yeah, when he told me that, I was like, mm, I don't I don't necessarily believe that. But I want to test it. I want to test his theory. So what we did that morning, it was 28 degrees when we went to train. Um, everybody got tracks that was 20 minutes old that's it and i know you bear hunters like 20 minutes old you know um 20 minutes old but when you're running you know 12 dogs that's five hours worth of training um so 20 minute old tracks and i will say that a couple of dogs did not track as um enthusiastic as i thought they would and then other dogs it was it didn't make a difference like it was just it was just tracking like normal. So it was interesting to see that, um, the different, the different style, the different dogs doing different things. But, um, yeah, that theory to me is, I shot it out the window. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Doug, I mean, we kind of went all over the place with all kinds of training information and, you know, breeding and pups and everything else. But man, that's what, that's what hound hunting's about, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoy it and, i appreciate you having me on again
1: no uh, we may come back around to you some other time but yeah. I'm, I'm definitely i'm gonna make it a point to get up there and hunt with you and kirk one time like yeah. man i'm come just wanna, i just want to watch you guys and learn and and maybe y'all can teach me some stuff
0: no it's it's a good time yeah we, we have good country we got a lot of bears and uh it's a good time
1: yeah <clears throat> all right well thank you for helping us teach train and learn